He complained that for so many years, the preaching in our churches has neglected to proclaim Jesus' direct teaching about social relationships. He complained that Christians found all kinds of reasons to ignore what Jesus said about social matters such as property and wealth. And he complained that it was often it seemed like it was non-believing socialists who took Jesus' teaching most seriously. The chief problem, he thought, was that too many pastors and teachers spiritualized things that Jesus said about such topics. And the result was a Christian society in which few Christians could be said to be followers of Jesus in social respects. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we bring you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2022 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Matthew Tuninga, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and the History of Christianity at Calvin Theological Seminary, speaking on Abraham Kuyper's Principles for Christian Liberalism. Kuyper was a staunch critic of the secularist liberalism he identified as the legacy of the French Revolution. But in its place, he advocated for what might be described as Christian liberalism. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you could help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Good afternoon and welcome to our Acton Lecture Series. We're thankful for all of you being here, and for those of you tuning in online, thank you as well. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Director of Program Outreach here at the Institute, and we're glad to see each and every one of you for today's lecture. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Matthew Tuninga, who is an Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and History of Christianity at Calvin Theological Seminary. He earned his PhD from Emory University in 2014 and began teaching at Calvin in 2016. He previously taught at Emory as well as Oglethorpe University. His research primarily focuses on religion, society, and politics in American history. He is currently writing a book entitled The Wars of the Lord, The Puritan Conquest of America's First People, which is a narrative of religion, colonialism, and race in early America. His first book, Calvin's Political Theology and the Public Engagement of the Church, was published with Cambridge University Press in 2017. So amongst his books, he also edits many journals and engages and lectures uh, widely on these topics. So we're very thankful to have Matt. And at the end of this conversation, we will have an extended period of Q&A, which will be moderated by two uh, gentlemen with microphones. So if you do have questions, we do ask that you raise your hand so that these can be recorded and uh, answered accordingly. So without further ado, please welcome with me, Dr. Matthew Tuniga. Thank you everyone for coming and thank you to the Acton Institute for inviting me to give this presentation on Kuyper's uh, value for engaging political liberalism. So as I've entitled it, Kuyper's Principles for Christian Liberalism. Let me just start briefly by reminding us who Abraham Kuyper was and all that he did. Kuyper was born in 1837 and became a Dutch pastor who initially embraced the liberal theology that was dominant in the Dutch Reformed Church before he underwent a sort of personal conversion to Reformed Orthodoxy. And soon he was a leading figure within the Dutch Reformed Church in struggles for Orthodoxy and the influence of Orthodox Reformed Christianity. He became a leading writer for the weekly De Hero, the uh, newspaper. He established De Standard, a daily newspaper, in 1872. 
And the following year, he ran for parliament. So you can get the sense of the kind of guy he is already. He just couldn't be satisfied with a parish ministry. When he was elected in his second attempt to parliament, he left the pastorate. And within five years, he had founded the Netherlands' first nationally organized political party, which, key name here, was the Anti-Revolutionary Party, or ARP. A year after that, he founded a new university, the Free University in Amsterdam, where he became a professor. And he produced voluminous writings on a myriad of theological and social and political topics over the following decades. In 1886, he led a split of Orthodox Christians out of the Dutch Reformed Church, founding a new denomination that became the Reformed Churches in the Netherlands. And if all that wasn't enough, as the leader of the ARP, he became Prime Minister of the Netherlands in 1901 to 1905. Not many Reformed systematic theologians who become head of state of any country or political leader. By his death in 1920, he had written some 223 scholarly works and thousands of devotionals, sermons, speeches, letters, lectures, op-eds, and briefing papers, which fill many volumes today, 12 of which have recently been translated and published as Kuiper's collected works on public theology, thanks to the Acton Institute. So all that in and of itself is enough to perhaps convince you that Kuiper's somewhat important, but... But really, the answer goes deeper. Kuiper lived in a time of social crisis. Colonialism, capitalism, and the Industrial Revolution had transformed societies like the Netherlands and Britain, increasing economic inequality, labor unrest, and class tension. The ideologies of Karl Marx and other socialists were on the rise with their radical calls for revolution or reform. And Kuiper believed that the social crisis of labor and poverty, what he called the social crisis, were simply expressions of a much deeper religious and moral crisis infecting society. Yet Kuiper rejected the conservative tendency to react to these pressures simply by defending the political and economic status quo. And this is a key part of why he matters. As he saw it, politics in the modern era was polarizing between the forces of the left and the forces of the right. Socialism and social democracy on the left, conservatism and laissez-faire capitalism on the right, and he thought neither of those reflected the best of the Christian tradition. His goal was to pursue a third way that was truly rooted in the Christian tradition. And in doing so, he was involved in a similar project at around the same time as Pope Leo XIII, who articulated his own approach to these issues in his 1891 encyclical, Rerum Novarum, on the rights and duties of capital and labor. And Leo also was hoping to uh, avoid socialism on the one hand, which he rejected, but also a sort of laissez-faire capitalism on the other. If you think of Kuiper's contemporaries at his time, in some way you might detect similarities with, for example, I'm not getting the next, there we go, uh, Otto von Bismarck, chancellor in Germany, who had pioneered certain social welfare policies in Germany um, that made Germany ahead of other countries in this respect. You might also think in the United States of Theodore Roosevelt, who's sort of a progressive conservative type Republican uh, president, and who also, by the way, was a member of the Reformed Church of America, the Dutch Reformed uh, denomination in the United States. But unlike Bismarck or Roosevelt, both of whom had substantial Reformed connections, unlike them, Kuiper's political philosophy was explicitly rooted in Reformed theology and in a robust political theology. Now, Kuiper believed that the reactionary politics of the left and the right were ultimately the ideological legacy oops, of the French Revolution. The French Revolution, 1789 to 1799, had violently overturned the early modern social order, remnants of feudalism, or what was known as the Ancien Regime, in the name of liberty, equality, 
and fraternity. And in doing so, it had clashed head-on not only with monarchy and nobility, but with the Roman Catholic Church. It had cast off an array of traditional practices and ways of life, including Christianity, in hopes of rebuilding society afresh in accord with reason, the dignity of the individual, and material prosperity. And so Kuiper associated the French Revolution with the forces of secularism, individualism, and materialism. That in and of itself would be interesting, but Kuiper's critique of the legacy of the revolution was more nuanced than that. He believed that the revolution initially had been very individualistic. It had torn apart the social organic ties that bound human beings to one another, casting each individual on a sea of ruthless competition. As he put it, it separated, contrary to God's ordinances, nature from history, and replaced the will of the creator of nations with the will of the individual. It made the possession of money the highest good, and then it set every man against his fellow man in the pursuit of money. It, it fueled what he called the mercantile gospel of laissez-faire, in which economic competition among individuals was unrestrained by government. And the result, as he saw it, was unprecedented greed, exploitation, and class warfare. Now this was the world, the, the world left uh, by capitalism and the Industrial Revolution that was criticized by Karl Marx along with a host of other less radical social critics. And by Kuiper's day, it was leading many in the working classes, not just in the Netherlands, but Germany and other countries as well, to turn towards socialism or social democracy. And Kuiper argued that that in itself was inevitable. The revolution had called for liberty, equality, and fraternity, and workers and the poor wanted to enjoy those benefits too. So while liberals, who at this time means people who are committed to laissez-faire economics and democracy, liberals might have opposed the turn towards socialism and social democracy. But Kuiper argued that in doing so, they had simply become the new conservatives, or you might call them the new right. And he believed that these liberals, in opposing the turn to social democracy, ignored the rights of community and the organic nature of society. It must be stressed, he wrote, that the liberal calls a totally arbitrary halt on a trajectory which, according to his theory, has to be followed. But the key for him was that liberals and socialists, though seemingly on the opposite side, the, the left and the new right, actually shared a common foundation. He said, thus, the liberal not only has spiritual kinship with the social democrat, but unlike him, he is in the wrong because he is arbitrary, self-serving, and inconsistent. Now, Kuiper recognized that this was, uh, that this seemed to be a contradiction. And he addressed it head on. He, he said, this apparent contradiction, the idea that liberalism and socialism would have common origins, this apparent contradiction stems from the fact that the individualistic character of the French Revolution is only a derived principle. It is not its root principle from which it drew its dynamic. That root principle is its defiant cry, ni Dieu, ni maître, or if you will, man's emancipation from God and from the order instituted by him. And so the true conflict in society, as Kuiper saw it, was between secularist materialism and social Christianity, or between godless revolution and fidelity to the creation ordinances of God. The heart of the problem, as he saw it, was the revolution's commitment to human autonomy, which he called popular sovereignty. For him, popular sovereignty meant an inherently atheistic system in which government was seen to rest on human beings' arbitrary will rather than on the ordinances of God. And he warned that such a theory of authority would inevitably grow more and more radical, following the thought of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau or Karl Marx. It would eventually seek to remake society according to human desires, even tearing down such traditional bulwarks of the social order 
as the household or the family. And so he said, oh, I'm not there yet actually, he said the first phase of the revolution led it to dismantle the existing order and leave nothing standing except the individual with his own free will and his supposed supremacy. But in its second phase, he said, the revolution's adherents sought to push God and his order aside and deifying yourself, sit in the seat of God and from your own brain create a new order of things. Thus, he said, socialists look upon the entire structure of contemporary society as nothing but a product of human conventions. And their desire to remake society led them to violate natural laws wherever they stand in the way or push aside the moral law whenever it forms an obstacle. The social edifice has to be erected according to man's women caprice. That is why God has to go so that men, no longer restrained by natural bonds, can invert every moral precept into its opposite and subvert every pillar of human society. Kuiper could be dramatic. So for Kuiper, the solution to this was what he called social Christianity. And I want to unpack a little bit of that. And you might think of these as sort of the theological foundations to what I'm calling, he didn't call it, but what I'm calling Christian liberalism. And the first foundation was his commitment to divine sovereignty which were reflected in what he called creation ordinances. For Kuiper, it wasn't so much the revolution itself that was so unique. He just saw the revolution as the latest manifestation, the most influential modern manifestation of the ancient conflict between humanity and God going back to the beginning of creation and rooted in humanity's rebellion against the creator. Now, we need to be clear, Kuiper did believe that God delegates authority to human beings, people, because we're made in God's image. But he said, God doesn't surrender his sovereignty such that humans can then do whatever they want with creation. Rather, God has ordered creation according to what Kuiper called creation ordinances. A myriad of creation ordinances, each governing a certain dimension of life in accord with its own principles, such as labor, education, the family, art, science, so forth. You could multiply them endlessly. I think creation ordinances were really Kuiper's way of talking about natural law. And here we get into what may have been Kuiper's most famous and influential idea, sphere sovereignty. For Kuiper believed that for creation to flourish, for human beings to flourish, each of the spheres ordered by these creation ordinances, needs to be free to develop according to its own principles. And the task of the state, then, is not to organize society however it wishes. It's not to usurp the work of the spheres, and so usurp God's sovereignty as expressed in the spheres. Rather, the state's responsibility is to govern and protect the spheres so that they might flourish in the freedom of expressing God's ordinances. Or as he put it, government's task is to enable the various spheres insofar as they manifest themselves visibly to interact in a healthy way and to keep each of them within proper bounds. Now in doing this, his goal was not to endorse the differentiation of modern life into a thousand different dimensions, each isolated from the other, as sociologists uh, have talked about for the past century or more. He, he believed in a holistic approach to life, but his point was that one dimension, such as, say, the state or the economy, should not be permitted to tyrannize over another dimension, such as labor or the family. For example, with respect to the problem of poverty and class conflict, he rejected the assumption of liberals and socialists alike that material prosperity is all people need for their moral and intellectual well-being. For him, material prosperity is just one dimension of life, but the problem of poverty requires a multifaceted response that speaks into many different dimensions or spheres of life. Now, it's worth 
noting that on this point, Kuiper was just as severe in his criticism of the Dutch Reformed Church. In a series of articles eventually published as Christ and the Needy in 1895, he complained that for so many years the preaching in our churches has neglected to proclaim Jesus' direct teaching about social relationships. He complained that Christians found all kinds of reasons to ignore what Jesus said about social matters such as property and wealth. And he complained that it was often it seemed like it was non-believing socialists who took Jesus' teaching most seriously. The chief problem, he thought, was that too many pastors and teachers spiritualized things that Jesus said about such topics. And the result was a Christian society in which few Christians could be said to be followers of Jesus in social respects. Kuiper's antidote was what he called social Christianity, but it was really just his way of emphasizing the comprehensive nature of the gospel. He argued that Jesus doesn't simply seek justification for his followers, justification and salvation. He wants them to conform to God's justice. And Jesus didn't just stop with spiritual deliverance and moral exhortation and personal example. No, he organized. And, and the primary way, in, primary way in which he organized was the church. The church's calling was to preach the whole righteousness and justice of God's kingdom. And on top of that, as Kuiper put it, it had an organized ministry of benevolence, the diaconate, which in the name of the Lord, who is the single owner of all goods, demands the community of goods in the sense that it will not be tolerated in the circle of believers that a man or a woman should go hungry or lack clothing. So the church is a primary way, social way, that Christianity needs to respond to the social crisis. But it's not just the church. You can't separate the church from the rest of society for Kuiper. These principles that Jesus taught and the church embodied were intended to infuse the broader social and political order. And Kuiper argued that in the history of Christianity, this had in fact happened over time. Slavery had been abolished. The poor were cared for much better than they had been before. And basic human equality was established as a fundamental moral principle, leading to a sense of social solidarity in matters of justice and right. And so following theologians like Ambrose, the church father, Aquinas, the medieval theologian, and Calvin, the reformed founder, Kuiper emphasized that all people have a certain, quote, para-equality with respect to the ordinary requirements of life. I believe I have this quote here. And, and this ordinary requirements of life encompass things like shelter, place to sleep, food, clothing. Kuiper said, this is the right that the poor have for Christ's sake with respect to those possessing more. Those who possess more but fall short in this matter are not only unmerciful, but commit an injustice. And for that injustice, they will suffer the punishment of eternal judgment and eternal pain. Kuiper would like to say, you know, about the book of James, for example, that if, if, if what James said about the rich was not in the Bible, as soon as Christians heard it, they would all say that's socialism. But unfortunately, it's in the Bible, so we have to accept that. Kuiper... Uh, was really concerned that Christians had lost sight of the radicality of biblical teaching on wealth and poverty. And he argued that society cannot fulfill these responsibilities of justice without the intervention of government. He said, if you fail to realize this and think the evil can be exercised by fostering greater piety, kindlier treatment, and ampler charity, you may think that we face a religious question or a philanthropic question but not a social question. The social question is not a reality for you until you level an architectonic critique at human society as such and accordingly deem a different arrangement of the social order desirable and also possible. So this leads us then to Kuiper's Christian liberalism. 
So what's driving Kuiper here is this sense that Christians cannot allow the revolutionary polarization of the right and the left to drive and dictate the shape of Christian political engagement. Now, these two principles here are not articulated as such by Kuiper. This is my attempt to identify kind of two key principles that I think capture the balance of his thought. The first is that Christian public engagement must acknowledge divine sovereignty by respecting the integrity of creation in the many spheres of human life. For any human society to flourish, its practices, customs, and laws must reflect the natural creation, order of creation in all its diversity. And again, the task of government is to preserve order, justice, and liberty so that humans and civil society are free and unrestrained to live out these purposes. Second, though, and kind of a counterbalance, Christian public engagement must be social in orientation, fostering human solidarity. We cannot flourish as isolated individuals, each pursuing our own happiness according to our own lights, just so long as we don't harm one another, according to the liberal principle. Rather, we need to stand in solidarity as brothers and sisters, whether in our stewardship of resources, our faithfulness to the bonds of embodied life, or our struggles against injustice. And these principles, this balance of ideas, I think, led Kuiper to articulate a fresh Christian perspective on classic liberal themes like democracy, human dignity, and human rights. And I'm, I want to look at a few areas of his thought to illustrate this, uh, starting with his view of suffrage. Kuiper did not believe that human beings have inherent natural rights to political sovereignty. But he did believe that God has given people rights and responsibilities that in order to be carried out require liberty and the ability to govern ourselves. And so he supported broad popular suffrage. He actually broke with other members of the ARP over this, although he thought it should be based in the family, not in the individual. And he supported the rule of a democratically elected parliament. In fact, he argued that as any nation matured, it would become more democratic and that to oppose democracy was to oppose a developmental law of national life. In other words, it would be to oppose a creation ordinance. And he supported the expansion of the franchise to the lower class, not as a natural right or even as a civil right, but as a moral right, God being the source of this authority. Secondly, poverty and property or distributive Justice, Kuiper rejected the liberal notion of absolute property rights that some conservative Christians were defending. And here, you already hear, liberal and conservative, the meaning of them can get so confused when the old liberals become the new conservatives, right? He argued that the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, requires government to regulate property in accord with principles of justice. And this was an interpretation of the commandment rooted in many Christian catechisms over the years. Thus, Kuiper insisted the government is to direct the distribution of wealth in accord with biblical principles. Its regulation must extend to land ownership, interest rates, firstborn rights, and rights of inheritance. And it must ensure that the repulsive inequality between powerful capitalists and defenseless citizens remains within certain limits. He admitted, scripture doesn't give the specific details here, but it gives general principles that we need to follow. On the other hand, now this brings us to the next point, private enterprise. Government had to fulfill these responsibilities I've just articulated while preserving the integrity of the other spheres. And one of those other spheres was private enterprise. So for Kuiper, laissez-faire economics represented the autonomy of the market taken to an extreme, such that the market was enabled to run roughshod over other spheres. But the solution was not then in turn to dominate the market with the state, as maybe socialism was advocating, but rather to enable the market to develop according to its principles in proper balance with the other spheres. And so capital and business had their rights too even though they couldn't be permitted to run roughshod over the rights of labor. 
And the sort of absolute economic equality the socialists sought was out of the question for Kuiper, for it sought to impose a human-derived standard of equality on the spheres, this sort of human reconstruction, rather than liberating the spheres so that they could unfold according to God's ordinances. Left free, he thought, human life would flourish in all its diversity, gender and ethnicity, gifts and talents, geography and culture, authority, family, and yes, up to a certain point, even diversity of property and wealth. Last one, the family. Kuiper was especially concerned about the family, arguing that the family, not individuals, was the true basis for the social order. It was in the family, he argued, first and foremost, that children learn what justice is, where they learn the virtues of citizenship, where parents and the relationships between them and their children communicate the organic nature of society, putting the lie to individualism and the social contract. Fathers and mothers taught their children justice, fairness, arbitration, providing a foundation for judicial systems and constitutional governments. In fact, Kuiper said, the true meaning of the principle liberty, equality, and fraternity is revealed in the family, relationships between brothers and sisters and their parents, not in the secular state. And yet when he looked at modernity, even in his day, even in the 1890s, he sees the revolution pushing against the family in the name of individualism and social reconstruction. Probably one of the main areas he saw this was the attempt to decriminalize certain forms of sexual immorality, whereas he thought sexual immorality is properly an area of political concern insofar as it threatens families. So as he put it, away therefore with false individualism and anathema on every effort to break up the family. Now, what I want to do just to conclude is illustrate this in light of Kuiper's 1895 pension plan. And the point here is simply to, uh, to show how Kuiper tried to balance these different concerns in a particular policy. This is before he was prime minister. He proposed his pension plan in the Dutch parliament in 1895. The plan would guarantee workers a living wage in their, in their declining years, based on his belief that people who've spent their lives working diligently have a moral right to a pension when their strength begins to fail. Now, he saw this as a partial solution to the disintegration of organic social relationships that had once provided such support in traditional societies. He argued that the abolition of serfdom and the guilds and other such uh, relationships had indeed increased individual liberty, but it had also reduced solidarity and security by casting each family or individual out on their own. And so due to ruthless competition, he worried that workers could no longer negotiate living wages to provide for their families, nor could they band together in unions. And he concluded that this meant that government had to intervene to restore these elements of social solidarity. But he didn't want government to have permanent responsibility for caring for workers because this would create dependency and smother the organic functioning of society. He wants a corrective that will then leave the spheres, the different spheres, free to flourish as they were intended to. If government takes over, it would rob workers of their dignity by eliminating space for private initiative. And it would constrict the possibilities of charity and social care that's necessary to serve the whole person and which was properly the work of churches and families and local communities. So what he was advocating here was a sort of emergency temporary government intervention. Such intervention, he said in the quote on the slide, should not permanently displace private initiative but instead should assist private initiative, strengthen it, and so conduct affairs that before long government can withdraw again. And the practical suggestion he was offering was of a mandatory insurance plan to which workers would be required to contribute throughout their life and could be payable to them in retirement. 
Employers would be required to contribute funds for sickness and disability. And government would provide funds just to kickstart it, but then government would withdraw so that its role was only oversight. And he thought through these means, we would solve at least the majority of cases of poverty, leaving tougher cases, people who are poor due to other sorts of uh, reasons, like say their own fault, their refusal to work or things like that. It would leave those sorts of cases to churches and families and local communities. And the result was a system that Kuiper believed respected the social and private purposes of property, both of them, that preserved the integrity of organic society and private initiative, that secured the rights of workers and their families in accord with their equal dignity, and promoted loving care for the spiritual and material needs of the poor by granting due place to the social ministry of the church. So, my point in offering this is not to say, hey, Kuiper's pension plan was a great idea, right? Um, that's not the point. The point is to illustrate how he was attempting to craft a policy that would respect these different concerns. But the ultimate value, I think, that Kuiper gives us is in the perspective he provides on a society that's torn apart by the polarization of right and left. And that he recognized that the temptation is always to choose the side we prefer as the lesser of two evils and support it despite all its faults. And so as a result, it's really this polarization that is dictating our action. It's not our own uh, deeply held convictions. And Kuiper reminds us that as long as we do that, we'll never escape the politics of reaction. And he's suggesting that the key to avoiding reactionary politics is looking past the politics of the particular moment and rooting ourselves in the true foundations of a free and virtuous society. By recovering the best insights of our Christian tradition and the Western tradition that has been shaped by it, perhaps we can forge a path of political engagement that is stable and sure and that will enable our civilization and all that we value in it to survive intact for many centuries to come. Thank you. Uh, what U.S. president would you say is closest to uh, Kuiper's thinking? <laughs> if, I, if I answer that, then I lose half the people in the room, right? Um, I also don't know that I, I'm, I, I don't usually think in those terms. I mean, I think you can find traces of it in different presidential candidates. I think you, I think if you think of American politics, there's aspects in which Kuiper would identify with the Republicans and there's aspects in which he might be more comfortable with the Democrats. Um, so I don't know that I'm going to give an answer to that question. I think if we find ourselves on one side or the other, we're actually falling into the trap that Kuiper would be worried about. Which doesn't mean you can't be a Republican or a Democrat. It just means you can't have blinders about it, I think. Some of your uh, lecture covered the third uh, Princeton lecture of Calvinism and politics. In addition to spear sovereignty, uh, I'm not certain if he mentioned structural pluralism. Would you, are, are they univocal terms? Are they similar terms? Stru I, structural pluralism? I think so, if I remember correctly. I think they're related. Um, sometimes this is referred to as the principle of pillarization, um, although that refers more to different factions of Dutch society, each having their own organizations, like Catholic, Protestant, and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would think that's what, he's, that's what he's getting at there, if I'm remembering the context rightly. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my knowledge of Kuiper is pretty much limited to just reading the social question in Christian religion. And in there he mentions that any solution to the social question has to begin with the uh, statement, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And um, talking about the necessary for acknowledging like divine sovereignty and divine right in order for Christian liberty to really flourish, or human liberty to flourish. And in uh, Libertas, Leo Thirteenth makes the same claim. Are they articulating quite the same vision as far as like, 
human liberty and kind of a follow-up to that, it, would a Kuyperian or a Leonine view of human liberty actually count as liberalism in today's marketplace? Or does the subjugation of that underneath divine sovereignty kind of eliminate it even from any acknowledgement um, in the sphere that that's actually liberalism, that's, that that's really something different? Yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, so, I mean, I haven't studied Leo uh, Navarre closely. I've read it. Um, Jordan Baller wrote a book that puts them side by side. Maybe that's what you read. I don't know. Um, that's what you're holding in your hand. There you go. Um, so I think it, in their sort of, their attitude, their interpretation of the problem, they're in a very similar place. How exactly, precisely their particular proposals would fall out, I'm not sure. But I think, uh, yeah, I think they're both trying to do a similar thing, though the Pope's trying to do it out of the Catholic social teaching tradition, Kuiper's doing it in an explicitly reformed way. And I think part of what that actually illustrates is that there's a tremendous amount in common between those two traditions when it comes to social teaching. So, um, but your other question, so I, I revealed my hand in that I called it Christian liberalism. Um, now, Kuiper didn't use that term. So, I think, you know, Kuiper in his own way could be a little bit reactionary. So he when he is criticizing the legacy of the French Revolution, he can talk about liberalism as if it's just this bad thing and Christians shouldn't be that. And yet when you really study his ideas, I think they share a lot of common assumptions between certain forms of liberalism. For example, John Locke. Um, if you read John Locke's uh, various writings, he is explicitly Christian in many different ways. There's scholarly debate about this, but I'm persuaded that if you remove the Christian pieces of Locke's arguments, the, the, the system collapses. Without humans being made in the image of God, without God being their master, Locke's reason for defending human rights, for instance, rights to life, liberty, property, and so forth, just collapse. So if you're comparing Kuiper to explicitly secular views of liberalism, say, you know, a modern-day John Rawls or something like that, then, yeah, they're completely different things. But I would argue that the liberal tradition actually always had a more Christian-oriented branch to it, represented by people like John Locke, however orthodox he may have been, right? So with students, sometimes what I'll have them do is they'll read Locke alongside Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, you know, in the sort of Rousseau trajectory, you see this very secularist kind of what will become the secularist tradition of liberalism. But in Locke, you see a different one. And I think Kuiper actually fits within that. Um, so that's why I'm comfortable calling it Christian liberalism, even if Kuiper himself wouldn't have used that term. Thank you very much. I've, been, I've enjoyed this immensely. I mean, you're in the heart of what you just talked about. I mean, we had Calvin, we got Kuiper, we got lots of Catholics here. Um, can you uh, just touch a little bit more on exactly uh, Parma equality? And uh, what, just an, I'm asking a second question, just an educated guess. What do you think Abraham Kuyper's opinion would have been of just the movements of today from LGBT to the, to the endless amounts of all the stuff that we're seeing right now in kind of the, whether it's an indoctrination or a transformation of uh, generations. Um, yeah, so I think I see two questions in that that are sticking out to me. Um, so I think the reason he used the term para-equality is because he wanted to get away of like a all-encompassing absolute equality. Um, and here I think, again, he's consistent with the best of the Christian tradition, whether it's Calvin or Aquinas or whatnot. They all, part of what distinguishes is, say, Aquinas' virtue ethics from Aristotle is that Aquinas views people as essentially and fundamentally equal. And that that means they have certain equal rights to justice and, and some of the basic things that go with that. But that doesn't mean they're equal in every respect. It doesn't mean there's no place for diversity or different levels of power or hierarchy or whatnot. So, and, and you get similar, I don't, not quite the same term para-equality, but similar type observations in Calvin. Um, when he's commenting on the way the New Testament talks about the relationships between masters and slaves. Calvin says that when Paul says to slaves, he tells slaves how to obey their masters, how to treat their masters, and then he says, and masters, do the same to them. Calvin says, 
Paul's establishing a certain level of equality here, even amidst obvious inequality. So I think that's what Kuiper's trying to do. That's why the term's qualified. And that's why I referred to it as sort of basic equality as a fundamental moral principle. But that doesn't mean equality as an equal sign. Same amount of wealth, property, whatnot. So that's what I'd say to the first one. The, the second one, I, I mean, you don't have to be anachronistic to predict how Kuiper would have responded, I don't think. Now, you know, you could always say, well, if Kuiper knew what we knew, maybe he would think differently. But putting that aside, what did Kuiper actually say? Kuiper was a pretty patriarchal guy, too patriarchal for me. So he, um, he was very alarmed, for instance, at views of the family in which there wasn't clear male authority, husband's authority over the wife. So that suggests to me that Kuiper wouldn't have been overly sympathetic with some of what I think are the, so I think Kuiper wouldn't have been very sympathetic to some of what I think are the good forms of progress that we've made in relations between male and female. Um, and he could be stubborn about that. And, and I think he could be biblicist about that um, and lose sight of bigger principles, I think. Uh, in fact, when Kuiper talks about gender, sometimes I think he, he acts, because he'll talk about creation ordinances and natural law, but when he talks about relationships between husband and wife, he can actually lose sight of that a little bit and fall into just proof texting. And I don't think he quite cohered that. So what I'm trying to say is, I think it's obvious he wouldn't have liked all of that, but that doesn't mean I think he was necessarily right in what he thought either about some of that. So. Thank you. I very much enjoyed this as well. Um, my name is Stephanie Boone, and I am a candidate for Kent County Commissioner. Oh, wow. And um, I just, um, being out there uh, campaigning, I am approached and have quite a following of the liberal progressive left, um, as we know them today. And um, they like to ask a lot of questions about um, equity, equality, mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of worry. I've been very open about the fact that I'm a Christian. And there's a lot of worry on their part that if I were to be elected as Kent County Commissioner, um, how would I help with the needs of all in our community? Because they worry that I'm only going to mm -hmm. help with the needs of Christians or people that are conservatives. And I very much don't feel that way. And in looking at Kuiper's um, 1895 pension plan, I agree with a lot of that. I wonder, though, did he talk at all about how to determine that need um, you know, qualification for need? Because you, know, you talked about... Um, some of these people have needs by their own fault versus um, needs that are out of their control. Yeah. Was there anything in his plan about that um, that I could address some of these concerns with? Yeah, I mean, he, I hinted at that. He spends more time on it. Um, he kind of distinguishes between justice and charity. There's problems with that, okay, but I'm just going to tell you how he does it. So for him, justice is the worthy poor. People who through no fault of their own, they've been working hard, but through no fault of their own, they got injured or they got sick or they're, you know, they need help, they're retired, whatnot. And for them, he thought they deserve care from society as a matter of justice. But then he thought there's other people through whom it's very much their own fault. They didn't work hard. They made poor choices, you know, things like that. And he said, for them, we don't owe them help as a matter of justice. But that doesn't mean we just leave them, right? For them, we owe them help as a matter of charity. But Kuiper didn't want, so there Kuiper said, those people should be for civil society. Essentially is what he's saying in this, the church, families, and so forth. Now, um, whether or not we would want to outline it quite that rigidly, I don't know, because it might be more complicated than that, right? Like, people make bad choices, maybe because of mental issues that are not their fault, right? And it becomes actually very difficult always to discern, is this their own fault or not? And so... I think there's value to making that distinction because you also don't just want this handout system where there is no personal responsibility and that's where, yeah, it's the job of people like you to figure out how you would take those principles and apply them. But one thing I hear in, in what you're asking, I mean, I do think, you know, Kuiper, and this is also true of Catholic social teaching, the idea of human solidarity going beyond just those with whom we have religious ties is essential. Right? This, the political realm is not just about, yes, we try to work out our Christian principles, but it's not just about 
seeking Christian interests. It's about the whole. So, yeah, so I don't know if that answers your entire question, but hopefully it's a little bit helpful. This is my first time here. I'm appreciative of this being my first lecture. And um, I wanted to ask, is what you've presented, do you still see it as a living, um, a living sort of, um, a living approach to how we deal with politics and how we deal with the rest of life? Do you see it um, growing and fostering things and having an influence? Because to me, we, we seem hopelessly divided right now. Um, it seems to be an intractable problem. Uh, and I would think to get our culture to admit that uh, God's sovereignty is our first, our first uh, commitment would be very, very difficult. Yeah, so I don't think Kuiper expected us to get everyone to, to admit that. That's just what we know, and that's what dictates our action. So, um, and this is where I think we, can, we actually can learn from someone like John Rawls. Like there's, um, there's overlapping consensuses where we can work together with people who don't share our fundamental foundations. Um, I actually think if you look at the origins of the American experiment, the language of the founding fathers that appears in the Declaration of Independence, um, that's language that appealed to religiously orthodox people, like Presbyterians, uh, who embraced the Westminster Confession. It also appealed to deists, who didn't have much orthodoxy, and they could come together in that. So I think Kuiper's whole way of approaching politics sought alliances with people who would work with you, which is why he moved toward working with Catholics, for instance, Reformed and Catholics working together, even though historically, those had been the two different parts of Dutch society, right? So I think we have to distinguish between why we do things, what informs our engagement, and what everyone else is going to affirm. Those are separate issues. I also would point out that, I mean, a lot of what Kuiper proposed and advocated for, he never got. He never won, you know. Um, he didn't get a ton done when he was prime minister in some ways. So we shouldn't have this, just because Kuiper had a certain theory doesn't mean we should romanticize his accomplishments. Um, but I guess what I would say is, is, you know, what I hear you kind of asking is, is this still an option? And I guess my response to be with, the, I, I think we need to bracket, at least a little bit, we need to bracket success from faithfulness. So part of my answer to that would be, do we have any other choice but to engage in this way if we're not just going to become part of the problem? So let me give an example, maybe. I remember when all the debates were happening about Obamacare and as that rippled out over the years and sort of the, the fights that would happen among Christians about how they should think about this and what the responsibility of government was toward the poor. What bothered me was how many Christians I heard or read online saying things like, healthcare is not a right, period. Government has no business being involved in this, period, right? Government has no right to tax me of my property and give it to someone else without my consent, period. We, comments which just showed that these Christians had very little understanding of historic Christian social teaching. And if, if that's what, so, and then on the other hand, you had Christians thinking who, if government's gonna care for the poor, the only way to do that is by a social government-run system. And if, if not, that's just this arbitrary right versus left playing itself out. What I would have loved to see more of, and I think the, this is the best Christians can do, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, is be rooted in some of these foundational principles. So that let's say, let's say you're in a church that's half Republican, half Democrat. You could actually have a conversation about this where everyone agreed that, yeah, health care is a right. Um, but the question is, what's the best way to secure that right? It might not be... One group of people might say, that might not be a government-run program. The other people might think it is, and there might be plenty of people in between. But we can all agree that, yes, justice requires that insofar as we're able to provide it for people, they should get a certain degree of health care. Now, what's the best way to do that that honors the other spheres and the different principles? And although we might not agree on implementation, then at least we can have a conversation where we have some shared foundations. So 
Is that still an option? I think so. I think it might be our only hope in some ways. I mean, since the whole Obamacare conversation, we've probably gone even further. But if we keep going further, it's going to get worse and worse. The, the results could be disastrous. Thank you. How do you address uh, the comment of entitlement all the time coming from the younger generation? How does that work into our Christian values? What was, what was your original? How do you, what was the verb used? Entitlement. No, I heard uh, that part, but, oh, how do you address I, it? I, oh, was, okay. I was concerned about, uh, yeah. I'm hearing a lot about uh, entitlement, and I wondered how that plays into our Christian views and how we're supposed to dissect that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a, a lot to say about that immediately without just kind of, going from the hip, but I, I, I guess I think the main thing is as, as a culture in general, we have become imbalanced, and this, this actually does come from the French Revolution, I think, if you read the Declaration of the Rights of Man, it's all about rights and nothing about duties. Historically, Christianity was more about duties and a little bit about rights, and surely there's a balance there where we emphasize both rights and duties, and I think what you're seeing in our culture probably is just another step down the road of emphasizing rights so much that it breeds kind of an entitlement uh, culture. We have time for one more question. Uh, so thinking about the healthcare that we were just talking about a question ago, when I think of like, it was in New York where they wanted to ban like big gulps, something that causes diabetes, heart disease. I find it strange that the people screaming about wanting social or a healthcare system, you know, healthcare for all, it's strange that we do want to be able to drink as much Coca-Cola as we want to. How would Kuiper address that? When the people, like big business is causing the problem, government sh sanctions it, and then big pharma fills the role of giving us the drugs for it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in I guess I'm an eclective enough thinker that when I hear your question, I don't go to Kuiper, I go to Aquinas. But I think it would be consistent with Kuiper. I mean, what Kuiper would be concerned about is the different dimensions of the problem. So there's the health concern and making people, you know, if, if government's picking up the medical bill for so many things and people are making such disastrous choices, you know, what does that uh, mean for people's health? You know, who's, who's making money from all of this? But then there's also just the need for people to be able to have liberty so that they can have virtue. You need to have liberty to have virtue, as Aristotle even argued, right? Um, you, but the reason I go to Aquinas is because Aquinas is so clear about this that it's not government's job to enforce all virtue. That if government tries to enforce all virtue, um, it could actually end up doing more harm than good, right? So you, at a certain level, you just have to leave people free to make certain choices. And I... I think, yeah, I don't know exactly how Kuiper would have responded to that, but I think he would have tried to parcel out the different spheres that were at stake. And in some way, um, you know, maybe he would have argued that the businesses that make all the money off this have way too much power and aren't kept in check or something like that. You know, I don't know. Um, but, but that's the main thing is that he would have tried to see it as a multidimensional problem not simply as a matter of individual liberty or not simply as a matter of public health. It's kind of like with COVID, right? Like some people only saw it as a matter of public health. Every other thing goes by the wayside. For other people, it's only a matter of liberty. Everything else goes by the wayside. And I think Kuiper would have been the kind of person to say, that's a false dichotomy. What's the way to engage this that honors the different things in play and that respects different sources of authority, government only being one. Remember, government's job is not to run all the spheres. It's to protect the spheres so that each can properly do their own thing. So that's, I mean, that's kind of like a general how I think you would approach it. I can't tell you exactly the answer to that question. Please thank Dr. Tuniga for his lecture. Yeah, thank you all. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event, 
and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa Zsa.